Hello, hello. Welcome to Pilled, where you can join the masses of crypto pill DGENs. And if you're not one of them, well, just you wait. I'm your host, Anisha Sukarneni, and this is Pilled. Hi, Mark. Really excited to have you on. And I'd love for you to give a little introduction to the audience about who you are, what you're building, why you're here. Cool. Yeah, I guess introduction to myself. I'm Mark. I like to build products in the crypto space. Currently, I'm a co-founder of a project called Myco, and we make it easy for people to build social networks that they own, co-produce content together, build valuable brands, and then have those brands be co-owned by their members. So if you imagine media-oriented community, DAO kind of space, but really taking a lot of the stuff we've learned from crypto and applying it to an audience that is uh, more mainstream, that isn't necessarily like crypto native, but wants to do a lot of the same sort of crypto related things like creating and sharing value within groups. So if I remember correctly, you've been in crypto for a while now. You're not super new to it. So I'd love to hear how you first got into it. If there was like some kind of like pivot moment or if you remember whether there was like something that was the first exposure that you had to crypto or if it was like a slow drip and then you're like, fine, I'll get in. <laughs> Yeah, it was somewhere between the two. I had been like slow dripped around Bitcoin for a long time and had been exposed to it for a number of years. Never really used it personally, but had always known it was around and knew it was like cool internet money. But I got really lucky, actually. I had been really interested in distributed systems and like mesh networks and all that stuff. And then um, I ended up getting an internship at Deloitte in Canada, in Toronto, which is where I'm from. So basically, this was Deloitte's response to crypto. And this was like a very small group within Deloitte that was like doing research into what blockchains were and what crypto was and how it would impact the business. Didn't really know much about crypto, was thrown very quickly down the rabbit hole, but you had to like use Mist and all this fun stuff, weird tech to access the blockchain and writing smart contracts was a lot harder. So I, I got kind of pushed into it that way. And then I ended up going back to school, building some stuff, did an internship at Consensus, which is the large company behind Ethereum MetaMask. And they were funding lots of startups last bull market, 2017, 2018. There was a ton of companies that they funded. And so a project that I built in college ended up being one of the projects they funded, which is a project called the Bounties Network. We were like one of the first kind of major freelancing marketplaces on Ethereum, processed millions of dollars of transactions. Um, but eventually the bear market got us. So we spun things down, sunsetted the project. You've been through a whole bear market another bull market and now we're back again. I'm excited to hear about how your thoughts might have evolved. What is something that you feel like you've learned since the last bear market between now and then that might have shifted? And maybe one thing that you think since the last bear market that you've just held conviction in? Yeah. So I'll actually start with the second one. It's a little bit easier because we think about this often with Myco because like bear markets are really hard in particular for communities which are people oriented and when the price goes down, it's just really hard. When your community is underpinned by a token, the price of that token leads to whether or not your community can do things or not. If the token not worth enough to sustain the community anymore, things get really hard. And so we had this hypothesis, my co-founder and I, and we've mostly stuck to it through the bull market, which is that creators are generally and communities, social communities are generally worse off launching tradable tokens than they would otherwise be by launching non-tradable rewards for their community members and then having those be valuable for a myriad of reasons. But basically just like avoiding the, the sort of public speculation aspect of it. There's just like a reality of the risk appetite for 
crypto investors and the way people move between like alts and things like ETH and Bitcoin and the way that things get bucketed together, it just becomes very difficult for people building real community, real like sustainable social relationships for them to be tied to tokens, which are at the whims of the market. So that was a hypothesis we stuck to. One that in terms of things that learned over this bull market that I didn't expect was a sort of acceptance of the speculative stuff. I think in my first bull market and the bear as well, I thought that it was really dirty to trade. Like the whole thing was very, and like ICOs, especially last bull market were really scammy. And there was like so much scammy stuff that I kind of like threw the baby out with the bathwater and assumed that all sort of speculation was bad. And I think this bull market was the first one where I was like, okay, not all speculation is bad. And certainly speculation can be a lot of fun. And I enjoy speculating on different types of assets in crypto as much as everybody else. But I just don't know if I want it for my community. But when people do choose that, I'm much more willing to accept it. I also think like it's meaningful in certain instances, you know, speculation does drive a lot of innovation and there's like a sort of reality there as well. In our particular use case that we're going after, which is like social groups, we still don't think that it's meaningful, especially early on. Speculation gets really hard when the people who are being speculated about, like if the speculation ends up being sort of negative or like tokens end up dumping, right? The people whose brands are associated with that thing, if they're not allowed to move on or evolve, then they're like constantly beholden to people who say that they owe them something that they perhaps don't. So that just creates like tricky situations. Absolutely. That's a very fair point. I thought what you said about tokens and your continued conviction in your guys's hypothesis was really interesting. Maybe we can dive a little bit more into your thoughts on tokens and even give just a very high level breakdown of of what tokens are in crypto for people who might be listening that don't know what are alts, what are stables. Like when people say crypto token, what does that even mean to someone who doesn't know? Now I'm challenging you to like, give me like a high level definition. A token is anything that can be traded or transacted between people in crypto, right? Imagining that a blockchain is like a really big Excel spreadsheet that everyone has a copy of and never goes away. Imagine like your Excel spreadsheet is used to track transactions between people. The tokens are all the different things that people are transacting and people can launch tokens for whatever they want, whether that's like a project, whether it's a piece of media or content or art or music. People love music NFTs now, but you can launch a token for anything. We have like stable coins, which are pegged to real world assets, typically like East dollar, Euro, maybe like other commodities as well. And then you usually have a lot of tokens for projects of various types. Sometimes the tokens are used to pay for the project. I think Ethereum is probably the best example of utility tokens like that, where you pay the token to use the network. There's a lot of networks like that that use crypto for utility. There are tokens which are used for governance and where owning the token gets you a governance. And then there's just like a myriad of other things you can do with tokens. Ultimately, it's just like a valuable asset that is in people's hands. And then the question is like, what rights or privileges do you give people who have that token after it's in their hands? Yeah, no, that was great. Like you mentioned, there's different buckets of tokens, but at a very high level, it's like, what do people transact? There's always going to be the concept of supply and demand. But I do think what's interesting with crypto tokens is you have these concepts of social tokens that are sometimes tied to communities. There's ways that tokens can be used for governance and for voting, and they can have more utility 
beyond being used as like a form of currency in a way that you use like, you know, a U.S. dollar. But then you do have the stable coins, which can be pegged to forms of currency like the U.S. dollar. And I know that you guys think about tokens at Myco as well. And you guys actually don't have tokens within your community, but you guys use shares. So before we dive into to how you guys do shares at Myco, maybe we can give the audience a little bit of a breakdown of how social tokens work like why do people even spin up social tokens because i'm sure that's something you guys think about a lot and something that i've thought about a lot when we did constitution dow we had a token and we didn't really think about all of the places it could go or not go i think that sometimes it's easy to overlook the impact that tokens can have and this also ties to the reputation component that you addressed earlier where as a core group of a given community or even a creator of a community, if you decide to spin up a token, just inherently by definition, you've basically tied your identity in some way to spinning up that token. And what then ends up happening with that token, whether it's for good or for bad, whether it gets like dumped or it gets pumped or it goes to completely zero, that is inevitably going to be tied to your name. I just said a lot of things, but maybe we can... I will, I'll hand it, I'll hand off like the baton to you. You know, it's a problem we've thought a lot about and done actually a lot of research into as well of like, how did we get here? So internet communities, right? Like the web was created, right? People start creating communities, social communities where people were interacting with each other. Everything was great. But what we've seen historically is that they sort of most of the time end up buckling under their own weight. They get so big. There's so many people in them that administering them takes significant effort, right? You have to have moderators. You have to have all these guidelines. You have to have like, organization, right? This is like not even native to like crypto or Web3 communities. This is purely communities, period. Like I've seen this way before I got into crypto. I remember people starting these Slack organizations and Slack communities at the beginning of the pandemic. And then there were like so much growth. We grew from 100 to 500 people to 1,000 people to 5,000 people. And it's like, oh, I was there when you were 100 people. And there was like a lot more value then. And now, sure, you have more people, but it's really difficult when things scale, especially with community. Right. So you get all the scale, then you need to do all this work. And most of the time, like it's too much work for one person, right? Like you need multiple people to come in and help out in all these different ways. And the problem is that historically speaking, there were no incentives for people. Then that's the first step of this story. The second step of the story is one that develops let's say over the last 10 years or so, and really gets popularized. And people build these communities and these websites realize this and they say, okay, now we should be giving people something as a reward for helping us or spending time in these communities, whatever. You start seeing like reputation badges, you start to see Reddit points, you start to see like stack overflow. Kind of like your Boy Scouts, like what did they call those? Sashes with those little like pins and badges. Exactly. So. That's like the second step of this. And then again, that fails because these things are not meaningful, right? One of the only cases where this has worked in the internet was Stack Overflow, where Stack Overflow, those points were valuable, but it was only because it helped you get a job. Where if I was an engineer, I could convert that into real life value because it would help me get a job. But it was tied to something like re real, right? Versus like very few of these ever were. Then in response to that, the pendulum has swung so far in the opposite direction. And this is what we've seen. This is how we characterize social tokens. It's this huge response of digital communities and people within them saying, okay, I want something that is like a reward that I get for contributing, but it's like hyper-realistic. It's like super liquid. I can cash it out immediately. There's no risk or there's less risk in theory again, because they're like 
liquid in theory. It's making that reward or those like points or whatever real, right? Because at the end of the day, it's like, does it mean something? Is it like tangible and going to impact my life in a way that I can say, yes, it has impacted me in a good way? Exactly. So then we get to such tokens. And the problem though, is that what makes them real is a feedback loop from the market right? Where the market is what gives these tokens value because it's people on the other side saying your token, your community is worth a million dollars. So each token is worth a dollar. And then the community leads are like, great, we can give these out and they're worth a dollar because those people over there said they're worth a dollar. At that point in time, those same people may not say that they're worth that X number of dollars or whatever in the bear market or whatever. They might go to $10 during the bull market and then crash to 10 cents after the bear market, because that's how speculative markets work. And so the key is what you highlighted actually right before I started, which is that everyone who makes this sort of deal with the devil, which again, feels like a deal with the devil early on, is because you're giving away your right to like self-determination by having the value accrual of your community hinge upon the opinion of somebody else, where the value of my community is dictated by the value that third-party people tell me it's like, screw them. Like all the people who know what they're talking about are in the community. They should be the ones valuing it or something like that. And so that's kind of where we've started working on Myco. So we did all the research. We figured out that eventually this would need to evolve into this new place. And eventually you realize that the answer is actually like really simple, which is just giving people equity and rights over profits. That is like the obvious and straightforward thing. So we started asking ourselves, okay, well, like what would be possible if this token wasn't tradable, right? And for securities law reasons, you can't have profit rights going to people like for a, a tradable token. But if the token is only earned by people who are doing the work, then it is perfectly legal for them to earn shares in the projects that they are contributing to. Like you can have groups of people coming together and working and investing their time and speculating with their time and in exchange getting something that is actually even more valuable than a tradable token. Because if a group ever earns any money, you could just distribute that money as like essentially like a dividend or like a profit share to the people who did the work. And so everything's very simple. You don't need anybody else's like third party trading, none of this stuff. You don't need any of it. You just need a group of people who cares about something. I think some of the big takeaways for me were talking about how when you create that token, you give it off to the community, the value of the token then becomes dependent on the speculative market, right? Like this third party. And we can safely assume a majority of those people who are speculating on it have literally no stake in like the actual community who is like creating this token or doing the work or they're completely a third party. They're right. speculating and they're trying to make money. Okay. So in Myco, we don't have tokens, we have shares. And that is kind of optimizing for this whole thesis where the value is determined by the people who actually do the work, who are actually a part of the community. And should there be any revenue or profits generated, it could be then distributed to the people who did the work in the community, which, right. you know, logically, that makes sense to me. What I wanted to ask you about is why is there like the whole concept of reputation being tied to tokens? Like, how does that play out today? We were talking earlier, if you were to launch a social token, whatever ends up happening often ends up being tied to the identity or reputation of either the team or the person who like initially launched that. Can you like give us maybe some examples or like what you've seen in terms of that? Yeah, that's a really tough question. I think that like if you imagine what is a token, a token through a certain lens, especially like after 
a certain period of time, a token is like a collection of people who ended up with that token, right? Like the meaning of a token is like X percentage of our tokens are in this person's hands and that person's hands and that person's hands. And so the community that is made up by the distribution of that token or as a result of the distribution of that token, like that is, if you really squint your eyes, like that is what that token really represents. And so there's a reality that result, that state is driven and shaped by the people who launched that token. The people who were there early on, who shared it with their friends and the particular order in which they shared this token in different group chats or told different people about it, whatever, the way that this token disseminated itself like through the internet, that path is shaped and heavily influenced by the people who, who helped create it and the, the people they invited. And so I think it's tricky because in the process of doing that, you have like trust lines or people like, oh, I maybe told you that Ethereum is going to change the world. And then you told a friend like, oh, like I have this really good friend. And like, he said that Ethereum is going to change the world. And then like you tell your friend and then your friend tells somebody else. And, and so like, you have these sort of lines of trust where like, if ETH ever did really poorly or ETH failed as a network or whatever, you would eventually come to me and be like, yo, like, why did you tell me that ETH was going to be the thing? It didn't work out. And so there's like always reputation that is associated with all of those steps, right? Someone's reputation is on the line every time you tell someone else about a token, whether we like it or not, and whether it's financial advice or not. And I think like in particular, the tricky part here is that a lot of creators make promises they perhaps shouldn't because they don't know necessarily what they're promising. Like creators are humans and like early tokens represent startups, 95% of which just don't make it because starting an early venture is hard. And so the culture we have around tokens right now is what makes me uncomfortable because it's a culture that forces creators to be beholden to old projects that are not necessarily successful. And it's also just like a framing where people who hold a certain token or set of NFTs or whatever has all the expectations of them and isn't necessarily as open-minded about like what they mean. So I think the last question I wanted to ask you about this topic is you hinted at previously this whole like concept of the evolution of tokens or if a previous project maybe ran its course and the person who initially created it or the core team wanted to be able to Kind of go, like, move on from that or to even evolve that token into something else that maybe holds a new form of value or just means something different. What are you thinking about in terms of that? So, okay. So the first thing that I'll say, and I'll try to characterize this in a very like explicit sense first, and then I'll tell you like the mushroom metaphor, because the funny thing with Michael is we always bring it back to like mushroom metaphor. Honestly, you can start with the mushroom metaphor. Okay. So Myco, for those of you guys who don't know, Myco is the prefix for fungi or anything related to like mycelium or mushrooms, whatever. So we love mushrooms. We love fungal networks and we think they're really interesting and we try to learn off of them. One of the things that's really interesting about fungi is that they grow by racing dead things. Things that are dying on the forest floor become overtaken by fungi who are able to repurpose some of the nutrients that were in there and give new life to the matter that is perhaps not part of life anymore or imbued with life anymore. and applying this to tokens, right? One of the things that we've been thinking about is when you have a lot of projects that have a lot of like valuable assets, and I'm not talking about like a treasury, I'm talking about the relationships that have been built between the people who are in those communities, the culture that they've developed. The intangibles are worth way more than the tangibles, right? Like the book value is like going to zero, but you have all this other stuff that is zero. 
And so what I have been asking myself and thinking about is there's a lot of creators and a lot of communities that have a lot of great assets, but are founded on really crappy foundations or like the incentive systems are wrong or the token is wrong or like whatever, and they should be free to evolve or be repurposed or to continue living on those communities, those people can continue to work together or those relationships can be sustained, but they can be sustained within new context. And it's actually like a very old idea. This is like much, this is not like a micro thing. This is like true for how all social networks evolve. I had friends on, I don't know, like MSN Messenger, if you ever use that or AOL or whatever, that those same relationships were moved to Facebook. And so Facebook grew in the ashes of the old thing, which was like AIM. And then you had Instagram. People are constantly moving between these networks, but the relationships are sustaining themselves. I think in that example, you're considering like how your relationships move from like network to network, right? And then you're the like the one factor that stays the same. But even in a lot of jobs where relationships are really important, right? People don't necessarily stay at a given investment fund or a company or whatever forever. And there are certain roles where relationships are part of the intangibles that are very valuable and integral to what they do. And when they move from a given fund to the next fund or one company to the next company, especially if they're in sales or investments, they often take those relationships with them. And I'm kind of like when a creator team like launches a token, why shouldn't they be able to take those relationships with them? Exactly. Yeah. Relationships are portable. Relationships are free. They And relationships aren't owned by anybody. That's the other thing. Like there's no world in which a creator who met somebody because of an opportunity they had. Like for instance, if you and I met because we were working on the same job and then we like left and started a company together, like that job doesn't owe our future work. There just happened to be the place where we met. And so it's like that kind of idea where relationships are long, time is long. We have plenty of opportunities ahead. It's just like a point on like the timeline. Exactly. And and it's like an experiment and or it has seasons, or, but like recognizing that tokens die and that's okay and we and new good things can grow out of them in the future and that embracing that sort of creative destruction so to speak is the first step towards rebuilding the next thing because and i think this is the challenging thing for a lot of nft related people is that like the default state is to cling to the old model or to try to bring life back to it right i like the way of thinking about it but also it still feels very theoretical is there a way that whether it's within Myco, if you guys are thinking about it, or if you've seen any examples of it or even what you could picture? There's plenty of things that come to my mind. I think one of the obvious ones, I talked to a lot of people who want to launch DAOs and they asked me like, if Myco is the right tool for them. And for the ones that have a token already, sometimes the answer is no, but there's many worlds in which people who hold one token can be migrated to a new one, depending on who those people are and what they're doing. IP is more difficult to migrate. There's like legal requirements around that, but again, like relationships aren't, and like culture is portable. And so I do think that there's going to be a lot of cultural portability for NFT projects. Yeah. Like it, it, those are the big ones in my mind where like NFT, a lot of NFT collections or like PFP collections have a culture and have a community that is meaningful and that com those communities will live on potentially longer than those PFP collections will remain liquid and like relevant because like, new communities will be started. It'll be like, oh, well, this person and I met because we were working as part of this old NFT project or we were both members of this old NFT project and like that project's long gone, but we continued working together. And that kind of story is one that you hear, I think like repeatedly on the web or in entrepreneurship in general, which is like things are birthed and die, but like relationships or people, you know, continue working together and then 
eventually it works out. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. The last question, I feel like I keep saying this last question, then I ask you more questions, but I promise this is the last question. So if you were to fill us on something that could be anything, but not related to crypto at all, not related to Micah at all, what would it be? To pill the audience. Okay. I think I have something. So it's kind of a two-parter, but it's like basically the same one. My pill is this. So what do you consume the most of every day? Water. I breathe oxygen. So air and water, right, are like the two big things that we consume. We focus a lot of our energy on what we eat. There's a big focus around like nutrition and the quality of your food, quality of ingredients, whatever, different diets. But nobody wants to talk about the two most important things that you consume, which is air and water. And there's two obvious things, especially for you, because you live in New York City. Air is very dirty especially living in like crowded areas, is to get a air purifier. I'm a huge fan, reduces the dust. Clean air in your lungs is very good, especially where you sleep and where you stay. Like again, especially in New York City, if you live in the middle of nowhere, like you live in Seattle, like you're probably fine. But if you live in New York City, like you should have an air purifier and you don't need anything super crazy expensive. You can just get like a regular filter, whatever. Do you find that there is actually like a difference whether in what you're what you feel or do you think it's like a placebo? No, it's totally real. I don't dust my apartment as much. There's just like less stuff in the air. The air doesn't smell like my apartment always smells clean and like always smells like fresh. And then just like practically speaking, it never smells like diesel or cars or fumes or anything like that. There's a lot of like random smells in New York City, especially if your windows are open, you don't want any of that. So that's the first part of this. The second part of this is actually potentially maybe even more important because you filter out toxins when you breathe naturally. When you don't really filter out toxins, when you drink water. I am a big fan, of course, of tap water because it is like not wasting plastic, but there's a lot of stuff in tap water, in particular in the West, runoff from farms, antibiotics, medication that people are consuming and like making its way through the water cycle again. There's tons of stuff. There are good filters you can buy that will filter it out. The one that I like is called a Berkey, B-E-R-K-E-Y. They're like a little expensive and they're kind of out of the way and they're like a big metallic thing that sits in your living room or in your apartment, in your kitchen. But the water is game changing. It tastes delicious and it is like objectively better. They say you could put like red food coloring dye in the top part and it will come out clear. If you were trapped in the river and you needed clean water, you would like probably first want to boil it so you would kill anything off. And then you could put it through a Berkey and it would filter out all of the impurities or minerals or anything that was in the water and you would have like perfectly clean drinking water. So highly recommend the Berkey, use them at home, drink clean water. People often over overlook it, but it, like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in water. There's a lot of stuff in our water. I have like a cup of tap water sitting right next to me. So, but I will look into that and maybe I'll link it below. So thank you so much for coming on today. Really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise. Thank you for having me.